Radio. Welcome to the Unlimited Wealth Podcast, where we help entrepreneurs like you build the wealth and lifestyle you deserve. My name is Nicholas Jensen, bringing you the secrets behind the relationships, strategies, and mindset of the most successful people on the planet. Showing you how to collapse time frames in order to win at business, money, and the adventures of life. You don't know what you don't know, so I'm here to show how the wealthy live, think, and make their money grow. It's time to live the life that you deserve. I'm, I'm here to help. My, my name is Nicholas Jensen. And, and this is Unlimited Wealth. Hello, my friends, and welcome back to the Unlimited Wealth Podcast. My name is Nicholas Jensen. Hey, today we're going to talk all about retirement plans. My guest, Damian Lupo, He's actually on a mission to free a million people from financial bondage, and he uses a unique vehicle within the IRS tax code called an EQRP, which allows investors to take control of their retirement accounts. So I think you're going to find this very fascinating, uh, very informative, and very interesting. So please help me welcome my guest, Damien Lupo. Hey, Damien. Thanks for uh, joining me on the podcast today. Man, it's great to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, as we were talking uh, before before we started recording here a little bit, we were talking a little bit about mountain biking. You're down in Sedona, Arizona. I'm up in Utah, and mountain biking's uh, one of my passions. So uh, one of these days, dude, I'm, I, I I mountain bike southern Utah quite a bit, but I was telling my wife the other day, because she actually mountain bikes too, that we got to make it down to Sedona and, and get after it, so... You know, it's it's kind of fascinating in this whole COVID pandemic thing. There's a lot more people that are doing a lot more out, outdoor stuff. So in a weird way, it's making a lot of the population healthier in that respect because yeah. they're actually like, what else am I going to do? I guess I'm going camping or mountain biking or like, it's almost impossible to get a freaking bike. Everything's sold out. It's it's kind of wild. It's interesting you say that because my bike busted the first of the summer. In fact, it was right after a mountain biking trip down to Southern Utah. Uh, I brought it back and it, it uh, the hub broke. And I couldn't get the parts. Um, anyway, long story short, it was a month in the bike shop to get repaired because I was they when I took it in, I was like number one hundred and twenty in re- on the list to be repaired. So it was like a month, dude. It was crazy. So, in fact, I know this is a tangent, but my other buddy, he bought his son a bike. Uh, his son liked it so much after two weeks, wanted a wanted to upgrade to a better bike. They went back to bike shop bought the bike back from him for a hundred more dollars than he paid for it and sold him a new bike because they turned, they turned around and they sold that bike that they just bought back from him for like two or $300 more that same day. Like it was people are, people are not. We're in, we're in a Looney Tune zone. This is happening with real estate. I didn't realize it was happening with bikes, but it's happening with a lot of things where they're, there's just this angst and there's this pressure on the system. And it's, it's kind of wild. This, these things don't generally end well when they have vertical risings on, on on values of things, but that's, that's the current space we're in. It's like 2005 and six in a lot of ways. Yeah. It'll be interesting to see how this whole thing shakes out. Cause I mean, you're talking, you bring up an an interesting point about real estate. I mean, things just are flying off the market. I, I know, you know, where I live, there's, 10 bids on a house. Oftentimes it's, you know, well over asking price. So, and I'm sure it's, you know, that way, I, I, I don't want to say I'm sure, but I know talking to other individuals, it's that way in other areas of part of the country. And I don't know if it's a scarcity mentality. People are like, the world's coming to an end. I got to get my getting right now. Or, uh, you know, it, yeah, it's, it's super interesting. It'll be interesting to see how it shakes out, but I'm with you. I'm, concerned about the other side of it because like you said typically i don't think this stuff ends well 
Well, it ends it, when things go when, when there's like a vertical up, there tends to be a vertical down. But yeah, you know, there's there's an old saying on Wall Street. And I know you've got some background there that bulls go up the stairs and bears go out the window. Yeah. And that, that's that's one of the problems when people go, oh, okay. Well, it's like Y2K. Everybody thought all the computers were going to stop on New Year's Day and nothing happened. And yeah. so it, it in, in this case, there's a lot of people that are shoring up, but it also, we're in an environment where technology just, it was already happening with this virtual world. What happened is this pandemic accelerated into a period of months, what was going to take years. And so we're, what, what's happening today at the end of 2020 probably would have happened anyway, 2023 or 2024. It just pushed it to the forefront. So people are saying, well, I want the rural stuff. I want to be out in the nature. And, and that's putting a lot of pressure really fast on, on those environments. I don't know that it's necessarily going to back off, but you, you know, technology is disrupting a lot of things. And so it's entirely possible that we could have what, what Jeff Booth talks about in his book, The Price of Tomorrow, where technology disrupts and pushes prices down 60, 70, 80% across almost everything. And the Fed can't keep up with that because they can only print so much. Even though they've printed a lot, technology is, is like counter printing with its efficiency at a, at a greater rate. Yeah, that, that, I'm not sure that I can buy into his 60, 70% scenario but it, it you can definitely see it in other sp- in some niche spaces where technology has driven the price of services or products and things like that down so cool man i know that was kind of a tangent before we get too far i want you to introduce yourself to my audience tell them who oh, you yeah. are what you do and then we'll we'll kind of get into the goods here so i'm my name is damian lupo and and i'm i've said i guess best way to describe me is I'm, I'm a troublemaker. I get myself in trouble by making a lot of mistakes by starting businesses and, and doing real estate. So I've started more than 50 companies. One of my books is called Unicornomics, which is the foundational 15% of any business. And it was basically just my experience. It wasn't something I learned to getting an MBA. It was actually me going out there and starting all sorts of different businesses over the last 25 years. And a big part of that was the real estate business that I was in, in investing in properties that I did for about 10 years, made a ton of money, many, many millions, and then lost 20 million in 2008. So I went through that whole roller coaster. And and what what I do and what I spend most of my time with now and, and what I'm focused on, there's a mission behind everything I do. And it's it's breaking the financial shackles of a million people, getting them out of bondage. And the primary tool for that is the EQRP. And I'm sure we'll, we'll talk about that. It's it's really giving people a different perspective on money like you do with, with the stuff that you're involved with. It's giving people options that they've never seen because what we do and what you do is really not in Money Magazine or the Wall Street Journal. It's There's a certain like checklist of things to do. And what we do is we actually, I think, give people control and power and freedom. And the system does not want to give people control and power and freedom. It wants to keep them in shackles. And you're, you're 100% right. It is I've gone out and, and studied and, and helped clients and things like that. The main thing that I try to help them focus on is you want to re- retain as much control of your money as possible. You want to keep it as liquid as possible. And you just want to take on the least amount of risk as possible. I mean, you're going to have to take on some risk. The problem with what you find in the Wall Street Journal and on CNN and CNBC and all this stuff, those are all quote unquote Wall Street products, right? Well, what people really don't realize because we're kind of, um, it, it's just society. It's how, it's how the media is controlling the dialogue. It's how we're, I don't want to say wired, but brainwashed, if you will, is that Wall Street is the go-to place for investing and for growing your money. Well, what people don't realize is 
People make a crap ton of money on Wall Street. There's no doubt. But it's the people that create the Wall Street products that are making the money. The people that are consuming those Wall Street products oftentimes are barely breaking even. <laughs> and, and that, I think, I, like it's hard for me to even say that because I just want to completely rail on it. But that's what people don't understand is Wall Street isn't made for the consumer. Wall Street is made for the creator of those products. Well, it's, it's like Facebook and, and you think, oh, this is great. This is for me. No, you're the product you're getting, you're, they're feeding on you. And it's the same thing with Wall Street. It's, it's set up to feed on people. And then, and then all the, the manipulation and the Madison Avenue advertising, it really makes you feel, it's like one of the craziest things is people have their money in mutual funds or something, whether it's personal or a retirement account. And they, they say, well, it's up. I don't want to, I don't want to lose out. My money's been, it's up 28%. And so they don't want to leave it. And then the stock market corrects and it's down 10 or 15 or 20%. And they go, well, no, I needed to get back. The Wall Street's structure and apparatus has literally brainwashed society to always want to stay in. And it's like, wow, you've brainwashed everybody to never want to leave you. It's, it's like being abused and you're like, please hit me again. And I'm going, we, everybody needs therapy that's stuck in Wall Street. That, that, that's what we need for everybody. <laughs> Like it's like this abusive relationship, and I don't want to make light of abusive relationships, but it's kind of what it is. Is this this abusive relationship that? Yeah, I mean, when it's going up, like you're king of the world, and you think that you have done something great when you actually haven't done crap. It has nothing to do with you. And then when it goes down, you know, you 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 want to hang on and just so that you can get back to break even. So when looking at what you do with the EQRP and we had a little bit of a discussion before, before we got started, help my uh, listeners understand exactly what is an EQRP and why they may want to even consider it as a, a vehicle to help them get control of their finances. Well, an EQRP is an enhanced qualified retirement plan. So it's a tax shelter in the tax code and it gives you as an individual or you as a business owner with 10 or 20 or 50 or hundred employees Regardless, it gives you the ability to use the tax code to invest up to tax-free in, you know, instead of having a 401k or an IRA that you're investing in stocks or mutual funds or whatever, it gives you the ability to invest in things like real estate, things like precious metals, physical gold. You can actually invest in EQRP in cash value life insurance. You can do all these things. And it, so what happened is the code was written years ago and it really is, was built back in 1974 for these retirement accounts. So that people could do all these things. But then Wall Street said, well, yeah, you can, but we're going to write these plans so that you were only able to do mutual funds. That's not how the code was written. And so what we've done is we've we created a better, it was a better mousetrap. It gave people all the options that are already sitting there. So people say, is this new? And I'm like, yeah, you know, it, I mean, it's new-ish, 46 years old. I mean, it's been around a long time and it's just that we haven't been told the truth. We're being lied to by the system. It propagates a, a myth and a mystery or a lie that you have to do certain things. But the reality is retirement money and especially the Roth account inside of an EQRP, this is the after-tax money, it is single-handedly one of the most important things people can have in their collection of financial tools because I think we can agree and if somebody disagrees, I would just tell them they're an idiot. Tax rates are going up, like they're not going down. And so you want to, you don't want to be spending your money or making money or whatever in, in 10 or 20 years and be paying two or three times as much in taxes. How about just go to zero? And that's what the Roth does. It allows you to do that. So 
right now there's, there's a strategy because of all this different legislation that's been put in place where you can literally get money into a retirement account, especially the EQRP and then grow it and then spend it all tax free, hundred percent tax free all the way around. And that's a strange idea. It seems too good to be true for almost everybody that hears it the first time. They're like, that sounds like that's blasphemy, man. That can't be real. Yeah, that's that, that's interesting. So what are are there, I mean, with like the regular retirement accounts, especially like 401k and, and my listeners under, understand and know my feelings around the, the 401k and, and all of its nonsense. But when you look at the ERQ, the EQRP, what are the restrictions as far as you put money in this type of retirement account? What are the restrictions that you can can and cannot use that money for? What are the restrictions behind getting money out of that account? Uh, things of that nature. Like how much, I guess the, the, the main question is, how much control does the government have over your assets when you put money into one of these EQRPs? So there are restrictions on what you can and can't do. Mostly it's here's the eight things you can't do and anything else is game, fair game. So like, and this is across all retirement accounts where you can't, you can't invest in collectibles. I mean that, but no, nobody really cares unless they're a big art collector and they're like, Oh man, that's the, I want that so bad. I don't know one thing. Like <laughs> whatever, you know what, that's go do it somewhere else outside of retirement. Yeah. But the, the, like things like real estate, you can do real estate. You just can't live in the real estate. Like you can't buy yourself a vacation house and go live into it. But if you think about it, that's not the point of the retirement account. It's to build something up that you have down the road. And so restriction wise, it's, it's fairly limitless. I mean, there are some restrictions on you can't do something with your retirement money that gives you current income. Like you can't go buy a piece of property and make a commission as a real estate agent if your retirement account bought something. But really it's it's fairly wide open and it's it's almost confusing because people say, well, I, that doesn't make any sense. How can I actually, I have a checkbook. I get to write a check. And and people that have say five or 10 employees, wow, my, my employees can actually do something other than a mutual fund. How strange. So you've got, really, it's, I mean, people, we have clients that are investing in all sorts of stuff, things I mentioned, like real estate, dirt, land, houses, multiplexes, coffee and and, and cacao in Belize and Panama. They're, I mean, all sorts of things, physical gold and silver. It's also one of the neat things you can do. You can take possession of the physical gold and silver because you're the trustee, you're in charge. So you've got this asset. And if you think about it, it's kind of cool because if you put money into a retirement account and you get a tax deduction, you get to use all that money to buy metals and you kind of have the government paying 30% of your metals purchase. And then you can convert it to Roth if you wanted to and not pay any taxes when you do that. I mean, there's, it's kind of wild when you start putting all the pieces together, but there's no playbook unless you're working with the right people that actually understand this because they're crazy enough to read the tax code. So that I, that brings up a good point. Like who's the custodian of, of these accounts, right? So you open an EQRP, in a traditional sense, 401k, you know, your uh, 401k provider, it, you know, if you have a business and, and are offering that to your employees or if you're an employee and have that, they're the, they're the custodian, your Schwab's, your TD Ameritrade's, people like that. Right. When, in these types of accounts, who's, who are the custodians? And like, let's say you buy a piece of real estate. Mm-hmm. Who holds that asset? The EQRP holds the asset or do you hold that asset in, in uh, your name, quote unquote, retirement account like how does that how does that function yeah it, the, the eqrp acts as its own entity so it buys stuff it owns it it holds it and and who's in charge who's the custodian you are because your name is trustee 
trustee and custodian are the same thing, which takes all the friction out of the equation. When you have like a self-directed IRA or a 401k, there's administrators and trustees and they really don't help. What they do is they, they restrict and hinder and create chaos and problems when you're actually in charge and you can hire people to help you. You can have administrators if you want to. Most people that want to be in control of their money, quite frankly, most people that are self-responsible don't want somebody else messing with their stuff. They want to make the, the decisions and then they have people help to manage or, or implement. But the, the great thing is you actually are in charge of your stuff, which is a foreign concept. People are not used to that. Shocker. I mean, you're in charge of your own money. That's, what? Uh, that's a novel idea. <laughs> it's, a, it's, it's actually very scary for a lot of people because it's new and we're not used to being, I mean, here, here's the deal. And you know this because you were there, but Wall Street's mantra is you're too stupid to have your money. And by the way, it's not your money. It's our money. And we're going to fee you until death do you part. Like, one of the things that made me just nuts was listening to John Bogle, the founder of Vanguard. Before he died, he wrote, there's something wrong with the system where the investor puts up 100% of the money and the system ends up with 80% of the profits where the investor ends up with 20%. Yeah. He goes, how can that be right? That's crazy, but that's the system. And you know, no, it's hard to argue with John Bogle. I mean, he founded Vanguard. He, Vanguard, he knows what he's talking about. And that's something that I always talk to individuals about when they start to push back on me on, you know, their 401k, like, Hey, I'm going to get my match and you know, it's, you know, tax free money or, or tax deferred money. And I just tell them, I'm say, oh, I'm like, okay, let's step back for just a second. Let's assume that you and I decide to go into business together. So you agree to go into business with me. I agree to go into business with you. And here are the terms of that transaction. The terms of that transaction are, you, Damien, are going to put up 100% of the capital. I am going to tell you what we can and cannot invest in. And when this investment plays out at that time, because between now and then you can't touch the money, but at that time, I will then tell you how much you owe me. And people think this is a good idea. Like that's, that's Wall Street's mantra. I'm going to take as much of your money as possible as fast as possible. And I'm going to give it back to you as slow as possible. Like that's how, that's how they win. They're whatever. It's kind of like legislation. Like when we had the Patriot Act back in nine, in 2001, what was the Patriot Act? It was about big government controls. It was the opposite of Patriot. You know, like when you look at things on wall street, the messaging is the opposite of the reality. So it's, they'll, they'll say one of the dumbest ones is, Hey, and sit, put your money in here and invest for the long term. And what are they doing? They're day trading all the money. They're moving money in and out of things with AI at in you know millions of a second. They're trading and they're using dark pools and all this stuff. And so whatever these quasi you know called financial advisors are saying, they're op they're doing the opposite. And what they want is to basically stop you from pulling your money out so they can feed you to death. And that's. I mean, if you don't understand that, you're missing the boat and it's because you're going to church with your financial advisor and you think that they're nice. Well, find out how nice they are when you take your money away from them. They're going to turn into like, you know, like some crazy out of control beast. And you're like, I thought you were my friend, man. You take away those fees. They're not your friend anymore. It's, it's, it's scary and sad, but that's actually what happens all the time. And you know, you bring up a, a good point when you look at financial advisors and I'm not saying that the industry as a whole has got a problem. Like they've set themselves up incorrectly and they've incentivized advisors to take assets under management. I mean, that's how they get paid. You, you, you can't fault an individual for going to work and doing the things that are going to get them paid. But that's how the financial industry has been set up is 
they're set up as I, I get paid by taking assets under management. Well, the consumer oftentimes believes that my financial advisor is looking at my account, making trades or making movements depending on market conditions and things like that. When in reality, that's not what happens. They take your money, they do an assessment right off the bat. Maybe once a year when you call them or you have your annual checkup, they'll look at your account. Other than that, they're just collecting a fee off of that money sitting in some big pooled fund somewhere, um, whether that's built by them specifically, which 99% of the time is not the case. More than likely, it's it's uh, an analyst or some type of, of fund manager within their company. Dude, it's just sitting there and it's doing the exact same thing that the rest of the market is doing. And you, as you talked about earlier, Wall Street wants us to think we're too stupid to, to handle this stuff. Well, in reality, if you just, if you, if you're like, Nick, I am dead set on Wall Street. I have to be in Wall Street. Okay. Let me just make this easy for you. Go and just buy six of the highly traded ETFs, the diamonds, the spiders, the IWMs, uh, maybe uh, a four in one. And 85% of the time, you're going to do exactly what Wall Street does over and over and over again. And you're not going to get feed to death. And that's what people don't realize, right? They're, so this idea of I'm just going to give my money to Wall Street rather than take control of it is back ass words. It, it's a it's a horrible thing, and most people are trapped until they're you yeah. know until they leave a job, so they're they're there somewhere, and and then they go, cool, I can move it. A lot of times, people don't even move it; they just keep it wherever it was, and so they keep getting feed to death, and they have these orphan accounts. I, one of the neat things that happened this year was back in the in March when they the government passed the Care Act, CARES Act, one of their one of their multi trillion dollar um, pushes, you know, their spending sprees. That part of that was this option for people to pull up to a hundred thousand dollars out of their yeah. retirement account regardless of whether they're working or not. And so like people that work for the federal government have the ability to take a hundred thousand out and they can either spend it and pay taxes over three years, no penalty. Or what a lot of people are doing is they're taking it, they're getting it, and then they're moving it into an EQRP so they can invest in things like real estate, life insurance, gold and silver. Like this is what's, and it's an amazing thing. It's limited. It only, it ends the end of this year, but it gave people access to at least a hundred thousand bucks. That's pretty good seed capital because you can ultimately take that once it's in an EQRP, you can say, okay, I want to borrow $50,000 out of that. And I want to go start my own business or do something. So that's where people start to have some options. They're not just stuck in this thing because it really is a merry-go-round. And, and I've seen, I had a client, pretty high profile guy, syndicator guy that does a lot of apartments and building things. And he's, he was looking at his account when he rolled over his 401k into it in EQRP. And he goes, man, I did the math with my buddy and we had this thing for 30 years. And when I actually did the math, my return was 2%. That's what I made. He goes, I realized when I was looking at my numbers every year, it would say it's up seven or 8% or 9% or whatever the number was. And what they weren't saying was, Oh yeah, by the way, part of that is what you contributed. So it's not necessarily a return on your money. It's just added capital. And people don't even think about that. Their, their account's bigger because you keep contributing to it. You're not making yeah. anything or 2%. Whoop do you freaking do? Yeah, you're barely keeping up with inflation. So when we look at, when we look at the EQRP, so for me, I, I push a lot of people into high cash value life insurance, meaning that I think that's an awesome investment vehicle to hold wealth for the money to, to sit there until you deploy it into real estate or a business or, or anything like that. 
When you compared that, because I know you've got some experience in that, to an eQRP, what are the what are the similarities to those two vehicles, and what are maybe some of the differences that people can look at? You know, they're they, they're both they both have tax shelter features, and they both have the ability to invest. Um, and have some control like with high cash value you have the ability to borrow money out of it and go do things you can do the same thing with with a retirement account an eqrp slightly different that you can just take your money and invest directly so with the high cash value the insurance company is going to be choosing that i mean like you don't just take your money you have to borrow it so that's a little bit of a difference there one of the big differences Here's one of the things people get wrong and some pretty smart accountants get wrong. They say, well, it's terrible because if you put money into a retirement account and you take it out down the road, you're paying ordinary income tax instead of capital gains. And they think, they think that's stupid. And I go, yeah, that's true. So don't do that. So if you're going to buy something, if you're going to use an EQRP, use the Roth tool. The reason that that's so important is because you're going to zero, meaning you're not going to pay taxes when you actually spend the money down the road. And that's where there's nothing like this in the world. There's, I mean, it's, it's truly unique because you can spend all the money and you can do it. You can even pull your money out when you're less than 59 and a half, because that's one of the things people are like, ah, I'm 40. I don't want to have my money stuck for 20 years. I go, yeah. So there are ways, there, there are ways to actually convert and then pull the money out at any age and use real estate, which we, most of our, our people like. So there's, there's just, it's different. Like the, one of the things I like about cash value, uh, the high cash value policies, it's a, it's a heck of a great way to, to store up money while you're looking for something else to do. And you and I would agree, no doubt that you're not going to make 10 or 15% on your policy while it's sitting there. Like that's, yep. that's not how ca- we borrow money from insurance companies and you know, we pay four or 5%. So obviously yep. they, they have to make money. It's a great way because candidly, most people aren't very good at saving, but a cash value policy, you get, you get this bill and you make a check, you write your check. And so like you're forcing yourself to build this pile of cash. So I think for a lot of people, it's a really good tool. Yeah. So when you look at the, when you look at the EQRP, you alluded to being able to spend all that money tax-free. So as a business owner, as I talk to clients, there's kind of two things that are top of their mind when it comes to finances. One is what, what do I invest in? Number one. And number two, how do I save on taxes? Like how do I save on taxes? And, and the conversation that I have with people a lot is when you're looking at a tax burden, you want to look at lifetime tax value. You don't, you're not necessarily looking at what can I save today and then bite yourself in the butt in two years or three years because you took some tax deduction today that, that maybe didn't benefit you long-term. So when you look at the ERQ, and you look at the Roth piece inside of it, help my listeners understand a little bit more about how can they invest in this type of vehicle and be able to spend all that money tax-free over the lifetime of of that account's value. So when you put money into an EQRP, it's either going to be pre-tax or it's going to be post-tax. And so if we're like, especially when we're talking about life insurance, we're talking about retirement accounts. When you put money into life insurance, it's after tax. And so let's, it's kind of like a Roth contribution. You put the money in. And, and so with a Roth account, anytime you want to take the money that you put in out, it's tax-free, penalty-free. Any age, five minutes after you do it, 50 years after you do it, you can always take that money out. That's, that's one of the nice things. It's not stuck. And then all of the, the gains that happen, all those gains, you can take all those out tax-free and penalty-free when you're 59 and a half. So in the interim, the way to do it is if you say, okay, well, 
I might want to take a whole bunch of this out when I'm 45 or 50. The way you do it is you have pre-tax money that goes in. And then when you're ready to actually pull the money out, you convert it to Roth, which is is normally a taxable event unless you have some other offset. Like let's say you bought some property and there's a way to buy real estate use all the depreciation to offset the conversion. And once you convert it to Roth, you can pull it all out tax-free, penalty-free. So there's there's these different strategies depending on when you want to access the money, if it's going to be your contribution or it's going to be the gains. The the truth is it's it's part of a strategy for a lot of people. And and you know there, there are limits. Like you can only put $57,000 in a year. So if you've got two or 300,000, 500,000 from your business, you got to find other avenues. Like this is not the one tool you use. You could say, okay, maybe I need, maybe I need a big old life insurance policy. Maybe I need a defined benefit plan. It's, I think we were talking about this offline. Unfortunately, a lot of people that sell things think their thing is the only thing because they're trying to close a sale. And I think that that's a disservice to people and not being rational about, Hey, this may or may not be for you. And it may be a part of other things that you have. So I think that that's the best thing we can take away from this, that this might be a good tool, might not be the right tool. You don't know unless you have a competent conversation with experts. Right. And so that's what I wanted to clarify with people is sometimes finances can feel scary, right? They're, they're like, I don't really know what to do. So I need to go talk to my financial advisor. So what Damien's talking about is with the, with the Roth strategy, because you're putting money in after tax, any of that contribution, you can pull out tax-free at any time. So what he's saying is, if you use the Roth component and you wanted to pull money out before age 59 and a half, you just pull out your contribution and you leave your gains in there until 59 and a half. After 59 and a half, now you can access those gains also tax-free. And that's what he's referring to as being able to spend all of that money tax-free. Is that correct, Damien? It, it is. And one yeah. of the, one of the fun strategies people will, will use is they'll, they'll seed their account. So one of the things that people will do, like they'll, they'll have kids and you know, a lot of people have kids, so you can hire your kids. Well, if you hire your kids and they, you can pay them $12,200 a year, no taxes, they don't pay any taxes, no federal, no state, no, no social security. And you get a tax write off if they're working for your business. So you peel off your highest taxed income. Your kids have active income at 0%, so no tax. And they could actually put that into a Roth EQRP. At that point, they can grow that thing. And, and guess what? That 12200 can be pulled out anytime. So you do this for 15, 20 years while they're kids. You have this big pile. And, and then you say you want to go to college or start a business or whatever when they're 18 or 20. Maybe there's $150,000, $200,000 they get pulled out. It's a really powerful way. I mean, we're talking that that money is never taxed. Not when you made it. Not when it's growing. Not when it gets pulled out. So there's all these ways to do this if you're thinking holistically, but people tend to be specialists and they don't have an idea, any idea about the rest of the body of finance that's happening. That's, uh, that's pretty interesting. What would you say um, from your point of view and your perspective as you talk to clients, what are some of the biggest financial traps that people find themselves in? Either no, probably unknowingly. I was, I was going to say knowingly or unknowingly, but most people with half a brain cell aren't going to go into a financial trap knowingly. So. Well, it, you know, people get emotional and there's, there's no room for emotion in investing. When, when people come to me and they start having these ideas about what they're going to do, I go, you know what? Well, you need the speed to so go skydive. And I've had people do that. They take up skydiving. They, they send me a picture. I'm like, good. Now you got it out of your system. Let's focus on actually making foundational fundamental decisions and not playing this emotional roller coaster technical thing that you're doing. So one of the biggest mistakes people do is they chase yield and they forget about the risk. They look at something, they go, oh, this is going to make 15 or 20%. 
And I go, what's the likelihood you're going to lose your money? And they're like, I don't know, but that's pro forma. I'm like, pro forma, man, you can make a pro forma sing, make it do anything you want. And so the question is, who are you investing with? What's the track record? What's the level of integrity? And the biggest mistake I see people doing is they fall in love with a story and they don't actually understand that they're getting into a marriage, especially when they're investing in people and, and assets. Uh, people get wound up about the asset, but it's not the asset. It's whoever's managing the asset. It's their ability to execute. Execution intelligence is not something you learn with an MBA or over a weekend seminar. It's called years and years of being bloody and muddy and, and building up scar tissue. So people just don't look beyond the sizzle and the pitch. They're like, well, I like this person. You know, they've got a podcast and I get it. There's a lot of cool people on podcasts, but if you listen to a podcast and then you go, cool, they're going to make me 15% and I, and I, it's guaranteed or it should be. I go, you're, you're about to have an experience called a hundred thousand dollar seminar where you realize it's not guaranteed. And they, it was Bernie Madoff playing. So true. You can take an okay deal with a good operator and it can be phenomenal. And you can take the best deal with a half-hearted operator and it can just totally burn into the ground. And that's, so when you talk about relationships and performance, I was talking to a guy uh, the other day, um, Chris Benson, he's a self-storage guy out in Georgia and he calls it Excel money. So performa is just Excel money. You can, you can plug in whatever you number you want in Excel to make that thing sing like a bird. So that's awesome. What's the, as you look at the, the investing landscape, I mean, you and I are both kind of big into the, the real estate scene and, and we love real estate investing, things like that. What are some opportunities that you're seeing out there that people, if they've got an EQRP or they're looking to maybe put money in the EQRP, what are some of the things that you're seeing out there that, that could be attractive? Because if you go back to the first part of our conversation, we've kind of, taking this, you know, huge run up, bears could potentially fall out or jump out the window. But what opportunities are you seeing that you're like, oh, that, that could be attractive. I mean, obviously you want to do due diligence, things like that, but, but you think might, might be attractive for people to look into. Well, there, there's a few things that I personally am very pro and very bullish on. And I see a lot of our clients doing the same thing and, and people that I respect that are very smart, much smarter than me are saying the same thing. I mean, the, the things that I like the most are gold, silver, cryptocurrency, like Bitcoin and things that are pandemic and depression proof, like self-storage. And the other one that I like in terms of housing is micro units because mm -hmm. people are wanting, they, they want privacy. They want their own space. They don't want giant amounts of hassle or headache. And quite frankly, everything is getting just bid up. And so we're, we're seeing a demand for that. There's not a lot of supply. And it's, it's an opportunity to go and cut out a niche where, I mean, this, the demand is very, very real. There's, I, I remember the numbers, the, the millennials in the 20s and 30s are, there's an unbelievable amount of, of renting purchasing power. Like they want to rent and they really don't want these giant things. They want simple. They want to be connected to, to amenities and people. And, and so we, we have an opportunity if you want to go get into that space because it really hasn't been built out. We've just, it's been America where everything's big and including way too much space. So the thing is, that's interesting. We've now gone into a place where we're clicking by like crazy on Amazon for everything. And, and then things that we didn't know exist. Now we have to have because we saw some ad and because the algorithm told us and told them that we want to buy this thing before, you know, 
And when that happens, we have this limited space, which is why self-storage gets more and more attractive. Doesn't matter whether it's a depression or a pandemic or anything else, we keep buying stuff and we get attached to it. So those are the type of things I'm looking at literally the next 10, 20 years. Like we have a hedge fund and it's a 20 year fund. We're thinking what makes sense for 20 years? Well, self-storage makes really good sense because America is not going to stop buying. Like give me a break. They're, they're going the other direction. Yeah, I mean, we we're definitely a consumer society. When you talk about the micro units, that's a that's a, a niche I've looked into. The one thing that um, I've noticed is cities they're not hot on that yet, as far as from a development standpoint. So specifically, uh, so let's just take there's a di- I mean, you can take a variety of of micro units, like, but let's just take tiny homes, right? So if you took tiny homes. There's a huge demand for tiny homes. People like the small space. They want their own thing. But to tell a city, hey, we need to put a, a tiny home mobile park, you know, in this area, like cities, they're not, they're not down on that yet. But but again, so so you've got to find people that have land somewhere that want to put these units there. In fact, I got a guy that worked for me. Um, we were uh, he was remodeling uh, some apartment buildings for me. And he went bankrupt and completely under building tiny homes because he got too busy and he was making promises that he couldn't keep up with. So he was taking deposits, promising to build these homes. He had like a three-year waiting list and it basically all imploded because he didn't know how to, how to run a business. But, and he, he got that up and running in like 12 months. Like it was just fast because the demand was, was so high. So when we look at micro units, I think, and I could be completely wrong, but I think that we've got some, some ground to make up with city councils and city planning and things like that to help them understand that this is a viable, affordable housing solution outside of, you know, high rise apartments and, and, and things like that. Would you agree or disagree with that assessment? I would. Um, the, the place where you can go and, and I've found success and, and is an easier bridge because I think the tiny houses is there's there's resistance in a lot of a lot of cities and towns. The place that it seems to be working is when these mixed use environments where you've got two or three story buildings and you like when I my first condo development I did about 15 years ago, we had these units and we said, OK, well, we're going to build these units. We're going to pick different sizes. And it was a smaller deal. So we had we had 20 units four of them, or sorry, five of them were small. They were like one bedroom. They're almost studios and yeah. they sold in a heartbeat. They were about 110 grand. The other ones were 160 to 180. They had two bedrooms. They were 50% bigger and they were slow moving. And what we didn't realize is people just wanted their own space. And it would have been very easy for us to add an extra unit per floor and you get more dollars per square foot. And I just, I didn't realize that. So nobody would have cared there. It was just, you know, it was an, it was an extra unit on a floor. So we weren't screwing up the, you know, we weren't creating trailer parks, which is what a lot of people are thinking in these cities. We were, we were creating a solution. I think when you do stuff like that, it actually works for everybody. And you just have to be really, one of, one of the most important things anybody can do in real estate is go sell your stuff before you build it. Get really clear on, on the actual demand, not just what you think. Like everybody thinks that they're Steve Jobs. If I make it, they'll come and buy it. That is not true. Let me tell you, I've done that a million times and it doesn't work very well because I'm not that smart. 
So, or maybe not enough acid. I'm not sure. Steve Jobs is pretty smart, but the, I mean, the truth is you just, that's a good thing in business in general. You can think your thing is cool. Find out if anybody, anybody cares. Yeah. I mean, it boils down to don't, don't make the product that you think your customers want, uh, make the product that they're telling you that they need. Do you know what I mean? And, and that's, that's what it boils down to. Um, dude, this has been a great conversation. You did mention uh, cryptocurrency, Bitcoin. I haven't tapped into any of that. In fact, I look at that more as like a speculation, a speculative. What I love about it is the decentralization of cryptocurrency, right? Yeah. Uh, who's the Fed going to take down? You know what I mean? Like they, there's like, there's nobody to like pin it on, but that's got pros and cons to it, right? If there's nobody to pin it on the, the question that, that I have is, I mean, it's just been confirmed that there has been some precious metal manipulation. I think it was JP Morgan that just got busted for that, uh, just recently. Uh, and so because the crypto market's so small, it makes me wonder, and there's a lot more people are a lot smarter than I am when it comes to blockchain technology and things like that. It makes me wonder if there's that type of manipulation that is going on or it could be a risk in the crypto market. Do you have, what's your experience with that at all? Well, the, the, the truth is there, there can be manipulation in anything. And right. it's amazing. Like with JP Morgan, they did it for 10 years where they were spoofing the market and they got fined a billion dollars. Well, that billion dollars just came out of their, their customers' pockets. They just said, okay, yeah. well, we'll just charge you more and then we'll pay the government. It was, so they got off scot-free. With the crypto, like Bitcoin, for example, is $200, $250 billion market capitalization. That's micro compared to the yeah. multi-trillion gold market, for example. So it has a lot of room to do a lot of things. I like that you can't you can't control it; that it it is decentralized. One of the things that Jeff Booth talked about, and he he said when you because he was on a show recently, and and the host said, well, the federal government, China, U.S., everybody is making up; they're going to do all these centralized, controlled currencies, these cryptocurrencies. Isn't that going to kill Bitcoin? And he said, absolutely not. What it's going to do is it's going to push more money to Bitcoin because people are going to say, I don't want to have the government controlling. You're going to end up having social scoring like in China where everything is monitored. And if the government has a, if they know every dollar, every Fed coin or whatever that you're spending, they know everything about you. You want to talk about tyranny. So Bitcoin is the opposite of that. Bitcoin is literally freedom. So I think we're going to have a war between tyranny and freedom. And because it's open source, because you can see the code, the danger that I've seen, and, I, and I'm not an expert in this at all, at all, but is it's when you have so many people, like a, a giant server farm that's mining or miner farm, they, they have these in China where there's just massive amounts of them. And if there's enough people that are controlling all these nodes, then potentially there could be manipulation because they have that much influence, but it's still, we're still not there. It's spread out. I like spread out. I like open source. It, to me, it feels more freedom-based and, and that's probably the most important thing in my life is, is how free is this? Is it, you know, is it manipulated? Just, and I, like our, our entire financial system is high, it's just manipulated. It's controlled. We're, we're being screwed over. And so I like this because it's a countermeasure. And, and I mean, we could go on for days about, about our, our financial system. And the one thing about cryptocurrency is you can, you can move from, cash to cryptocurrency and that transaction the government's going to see but once it's in crypto there's no way for them for them to track it. it it's kind of like i use cash to buy physical gold and the government can see that transaction but once i have a bar of gold in my pocket 
they don't know is it in my backyard is it in my closet did i give it to my neighbor like they don't have any idea and that's one of the beautiful things about about the crypto market as well i i haven't de dove into it. it it was a lot you know it's a lot of speculation for me still i understand it's kind of getting more normalized it'll be interesting to see how it shakes out in the end but uh i i definitely think it's it's something to watch for sure and you can we're we're definitely going into a crypto space globally like that. We are moving into a place where it's going to be digital currency. There was, there was part of the bill in the spring of 2020 that was going to push out stimulus checks and all this funny money. That's this kind of like basic universal income that they're testing with these checks that it was going to be a, basically a fed backed crypto. It was going to be on a card and, and they're shifting. So whether anybody likes it or not, whether we think it's scary and it's confusing, the reality is it's going to be what we're using here. I, no doubt this decade, it's going to happen. So the question is, are you going to like get, are you going to chase it or are you going to get in front of it? And I think that's the, the most important thing about getting involved. And I don't care if you go buy a hundred dollars worth of Bitcoin, but it actually, it, it helps us understand what's going on if we're participating versus I wonder what's happening. And then all of a sudden it's imposed on us. Yeah. No, you bring, you bring up a good point. And when, I mean, there's so, <laughs> we can go on forever. There's so many risks when you go to just a digital currency. Like for example, we're in the COVID pandemic and you can have whatever opinion you want on COVID and masks and things like that. And, and, but let's talk about the vaccine, right? Let's say that you're a pro-vaxxer, like, yep, I'm taking a vaccine and you're an anti-vaxxer. Nope, I'm not taking the vaccine. And the government comes out and says, oh, we really want people to take the vaccine. Well, we can't necessarily force them to take the vaccine, but if we've got a digital currency, what we can do is we can shut accounts off or make it very difficult to maneuver within our economy. That's, those are the things that go through my head that makes it scary for me in which I love physical assets, real estate, gold, silver, stuff I can touch and feel and nobody can come push a button and shut it down. So, but there's, I mean, it's, as you talked about, there's definitely stuff that we've got to be aware of on both sides of that for sure. So cool. But Damien, uh, this has been a great conversation. What, uh, how, how can people get a hold of you? If they want to reach out to you, maybe learn a little bit more about EQRPs or, or what you're doing, connect with you. What's the best way for them to do that? Best thing to do, get information. And I'm a big proponent of that, just educating yourself and learning. Um, the best thing to do is grab your phone and shoot me a text. Shoot a text with the word EQRP to 72,000 and you'll get an automated report. It's basically a 15-page summation of my, my the QRP book that I wrote years ago. So really simple, one word, EQRP to 72,000 and uh, get the conversation started and you can follow up. You can text right back to the number and and it'll actually show up on my screen and, and my team's screen. So if you want to connect with me, that's the best way to do it. Awesome, Damien. Well, thanks for your time today. Any parting words that you want to leave with people? Any last parting words? Yeah, I mean, this everything is changing and it's accelerating. And the only way to actually create wealth and maintain wealth is to have more experiences where you fall on your face. And you can do it slowly and you can get up or you can wait and hope it, it all works out and you're going to get run over and it's going to be a really bad fall. So the, the advice is go out there. You're not going to be eaten by a wild animal. Go out and make mistakes. Um, mistakes aren't going to kill you. They're going to make you stronger and you're going to build that confidence. I think that people are afraid of making mistakes because of judgment that we've been, we've learned because if you fail as a kid, you're, 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 you're told you're an idiot. In reality, if you can make 50% of, of your stuff right and you got 50% wrong, you're probably a billionaire. So go, go fail faster and go, go take some action on something. Yeah, I could not agree with you more. I think that is a, 
a great point to end on. So thanks so much for your time, Damien. It's been awesome to connect with you. Listeners, uh, reach out to Damien, see if he see if uh, his EQRP vehicle might be something that uh, that is beneficial to you. And we will talk to you next time. See ya. Thanks, Nick. Hey, real quick. Are you a six or seven figure entrepreneur who is making great money, but like so many other unwealthy successes, you're not seeing your wealth grow? If so, I can help. Head over to nicholascjensen.com forward slash wealth and take my free wealth building assessment now. Learn how to become a strategic investor and start building the wealth you and your family deserve. Again, that's nicholas, the letter C, jensen.com forward slash wealth. We'll see you next time on Unlimited Wealth.